If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Online fundraising is essential to nonprofit survival now more than ever. So I'm going to get straight to today's guest, Brady Josephson, who is a fellow charity nerd. And I'm not throwing stones because I'm a charity nerd, and I've actually watched YouTube videos where he has called himself a charity nerd as well, so not throwing any stones. Brady specializes in digital marketing and fundraising and is a blogger, writer, speaker, professor, entrepreneur, and he's also a podcast host. He has been featured in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the Huffington Post, and NPR. These days, you can find Brady at Next After, where he is the managing director. And Next After strives to help nonprofits understand why their donors give and then help them use that information to increase their fundraising potential. Brady performs that research, develops evidence-based resources, and provides data-driven training to help his clients raise more money online. So please join me in welcoming Brady to the podcast. Hey, Brady, welcome. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me. And I should say in that introduction, I only do a little bit of that. I don't do all of those things. I'm involved, but it makes me sound like I'm doing a lot more things than I actually do. So just want to make that clear. Well, I will say that when we check out your website, I, I can clearly tell there's a lot of other people that are involved in Next After, but I also get that you're kind of the driving force behind it. So in one way or another, you're kind of doing it. I was kind of hoping for the launch point of our conversation today, you could maybe share a little bit about the common reasons that you find donors are giving. Yeah, you bet. So that's that's the fundamental mission, right, is for us to decode why people give. And I think fundamentally, we in the nonprofit space, if you look back over the past you know, 20, 30 years, uh, we haven't done a great job of actually understanding about why donors give. This is why uh, donor rates, donor retention rates have been low. This is why the, the number of people giving, both in my native Canada as well as the U.S., where we do the majority of our work, are declining. And we think it's a fundamental uh, reason that we haven't really uncovered why people give. 
So that's really what our research and testing is trying to figure out, because if you can unlock the biggest question that we all face is why does someone actually give, then you can unlock or unleash the greatest amount of generosity. So it's this bit of a challenge because a lot of people come to us saying, you know, how do we improve our emails and how do you, you know, optimize our donation pages? And there's absolutely tons of room and opportunity to do that. But the biggest thing that moves the needle is what we call the value proposition or how you answer this one question in the mind of the donors. Why should I give to you? as opposed to another organization, or not at all. Whether you're sending an email, whether you're having a phone call, whether you're face-to-face visit, fundamentally, at a high level, this is the, the question that we are all trying to answer in the, in the mind of our donors. And it's the hardest question for us to answer, but it's the most important and imperative thing. So that's what we spend a lot of our time actually trying to focus in, in research and test. So that's really what a lot of our, our focus is trying to do, is trying to do two different forms of research to try to figure out why do people give, and if we can decode that, then we can do better job in terms of emails, landing pages, donation pages, all that kind of good online digital stuff. So that's really what we're trying to answer and try to figure out. So the $64,000 question, I obviously have to ask because my listeners are going to be upset if I don't, which is what is that case that a charity makes? Why, you know, why should a donor give to my charity as opposed to the other charity that maybe does something really similar? Yeah, so the methodology that we use to try to actually score and process and understand that that question, there's, there's two things. One, uh, when it comes to answering the value proposition, we look at four different factors that you can use to answer the question. One is appeal. Does someone even like what it is that you're doing? Do they identify with your cause? It's something that's normally pretty ingrained within them. There's exclusivity. What makes you different? What makes you unique than the organization down the street, down the block, uh, you know, online <laughs> compared to any other no- number of organizations? Um, credibility or trust? Do people actually believe in what you in what you say? You know, is there a third party validation that can say yes, this is a quality organization? And the one that I think is actually most important and most useful for most nonprofits is actually clarity. Clarity is the thing that we often look at and we say clarity trumps persuasion. So you can build a value proposition or an answer or case for support or however you want to define it. That touches on things like why someone should identify with your cause, why someone should trust or believe you, uh, what actually makes unique. Fundamentally, we do a poor job at just being simple and being clear. Um, I always tell the story about one of the first organizations that I worked for is a microfinance uh, organization, International Development. And I loved the model of microfinance. I was a bit of an international development nerd. That's why I got into the whole nonprofit space. I love the model. I love the sustainability. I love the numbers. And so my love and a lot of our donors love for that, major donors, led to our communications being very much pretty sophisticated and high level. And if you'd actually step back, you'd be like, what the heck do you even do? Great, you've got loan repayment rates and how many go to women, but like fundamentally, what is the clear, simple, tangible thing that you do? And we helped primarily women get out of poverty, right? And so our message and nonprofits do this all the time. It's so complicated, carry so many different voices, you know, the board member, the ED, you know, the focus groups, the consultants, and it ends up being very vague statements, right? We provide hope and healing to kids. It's like, great. I still don't know what you do, right? So clarity is the one that we see is often most lacking when it comes to uh, answering that question. So that's like one framework for people to look at. And so we'll actually run um, research projects where we'll contact a nonprofit by phone, social media, through their website and email them and actually ask this question, you know, say my partner and I, we're looking to make a gift. We're just, we're looking at supporting you. We're just wondering, you know, why should we support you today? We catalog and classify the different responses. Did they get back to us at all? Which a lot of organizations don't. And then how does that answer change across channels? And it's absolutely fascinating to see 
different people within the organization, answer the question differently, and generally speaking, again, how unprepared or how weak the answer to that question of why I should give to you today as opposed to another organization or not at all actually is across the board. It's, it's pretty surprising because that's, again, that's the biggest question and that's the thing that we all need to be answering. So that's one of the two frameworks. I can talk about the other framework, but that's one of the ways that we go about answering that question or look at answering that question. Before we get to that second framework, we've really got to drill down and unpack this just a little bit. You said a lot of charities don't even return your call. If you were to give me a ballpark, what percentage are we talking? 33%. Ish. A third. Wow. And have you pulled their 990s? Is it, are they small? Are they large? Do, are they in t- across the entire spectrum? What's the deal? Yeah, the, the majority of our research is focused on slightly larger organizations. That's who we typically serve. So the median revenues is about $100 million in, for nonprofits in our study. You know, I've been doing these studies for two and a half years, and it's pretty consistent that we can't complete donations to about 20% of organizations. A form is broken. Uh, something's impossible to find. It's just not loading or refreshing at that time of day. But there's about a 15 to 20% of, uh, you know, leakage that we just, we can't complete donations to at any given point, which is absolutely crazy. And then for a research study we did last year where we signed up for email and made a donation to the same organization, two separate emails personas, but at the exact same time. Uh, we were only able to get an email back for, to both personas from 48% of organizations. Really? And again, yeah, yeah, again. And most most of the brokenness was on the email sign-up form side of things where we, we think, again, we're only monitoring the user experience side of things in this research study. So we don't know what's broken necessarily on the other side. Could be a broken form, could be a broken process, could be a broken integration between two tools. We don't know what's going on. We just know that we said, please send me your emails and we did not get them. Right. And so it part of the, the, the good thing or one of the interesting things about that research is actually saying, you know, we can spend time talking on podcasts or doing conferences about, you know, AI and predictive giving behavior. And there's some really cool stuff. But at the same time, like we can't even make a donation to 20 percent of nonprofits and we can't even get email communication that we said, please email me by making a donation in email, less than 50% of the time. Or when we say, why should we give to you? Less than a third or a third of organizations aren't getting back to us. So that's like, you know, table stakes, very, very simple stuff that is not being done. And we have to get that stuff done first. Otherwise, AI means nothing, right? So it's one of the, the kind of byproducts of our research that initially we weren't you know, seeking that out. It just kept slapping us in the face every time we kept doing these research studies. So anyways, um, yeah, it's about a third of organizations did not reach back out. And then you said a significant portion of those that did reach back out could not really easily and concisely explain why you should give to them. Can you categorize those in any way, the way you were kind of able to for those that did not reach back out? Yeah. And again, I think we, we looked at we would score them on those four different factors of appeal. Most score higher on appeal. It's it's generally easy to say, like, why should you care about kids or animals or civil rights or whatever it is that you're working in? That's generally the easiest part. Organizations will score a little bit higher on appeal. Credibility. Uh, some organizations don't do it all. Right. You know, why should I give to you? Well, because we help kids. OK. OK. But why should I trust you? There's a lot of organizations that help kids. So even saying, you know, we've been doing this since 1963, you know, we're, you know, a gold member of GuideStar and, you know, Charity Navigator. And that's a whole different discussion whether they are really valid or not, but they are trust indicators, right? So whether you're using something like that, few organizations add in credibility. 
exclusivity, like what really makes you unique, a lot of organizations really struggle with, right? Because there's a lot of very similar type organizations. But even one of the things that we say is, you know, if you're the Denver rescue mission, one of the things that makes you exclusive is that you work in Denver. <laughs> so in your answer, talk about Denver. You know, it's such an it's such an obvious thing, but people will actually remove things like location or the population that you serve. You know, kids, what age group of kids is it? high school kids? Is it junior high kids? Is it elementary kids? Is it preschool? You know, is, is it a particular area? Is it a particular set of income or, you know what I mean? Just that, that extra level of specificity or clarity or tangibility is the thing that's most often lacking. And then what's so damaging about that is tangibility is one of the main things that actually helps people, the average person give. There's a clear link between tangibility and generosity. And so when nonprofits are, are lacking tangibility or clarity, it's not just confusing to us as researchers and donors. It's actually hurting the likelihood that someone is giving to the organization. So part of what I think are you saying is really nonprofits have to niche down to their donors. And so, for example, if you're that Denver nonprofit and you don't want to say, oh, well, we're Denver, we're exclusively Denver, because you think, well, there's 300 million people in America and we're going to exclude, well, I don't know how many millions of people live in Denver. We're going to exclude 300 million and only have 2 million left. So they're not niching down to their donors, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, this, that's exactly it. And what's tough is one of the things working with nonprofits, as I'm sure you know, is it's filled with so many optimists, right? Uh, if you're not optimistic, why would you go work for a nonprofit? Because our causes, our missions are so difficult, so complex. Like you have to be an optimistic person. But unfortunately, that also bleeds into the fundraising discussion, right? Of like, who's our donor? Everyone can be our donor, you know? Uh, I was actually doing consulting with a, work with a chiropractic association up in Vancouver, and we were going through this branding process that who's your donor? And they said, anyone with a spine. I said, well, that's, that's not super useful for us when it comes to targeting, you know? Facebook doesn't have a, do you have a spine button? <laughs> you know, but that's often the sentiment. And the thing that's, you know, that we try to get to is like, you know, if you're in Denver and you talk specifically about, you know, Denver Rescue, then that's who your ideal donor is. And in that question, we really talk about ideal donor. It doesn't mean you can't get donors from Santa Fe, New Mexico or whatever. Like your ideal donor is someone who cares about Denver. So talk about Denver. And it's just, it, again, it's a simple thing. It's communication. It's a branding thing. But I think that optimist side in a lot of nonprofits comes out and it's like, oh, but are we, are we leaving people out? And that's a great, you know, philosophical mindset to be inclusive but when it comes to actually marketing communications, it's not a benefit. It's a weakness. Yeah, it's interesting. I think perhaps that's something that the nonprofit sector can really learn from the for-profit sector. Because, you know, those of us like in my consulting practice is a for-profit company. And, and those of us that are in the for-profit sector, we really do understand that we can't speak to everybody. And ideally, we know that we're going to turn off for some prospective buyers because we want to get our ideal customer the same way that a nonprofit wants to get its ideal donor. Yeah. And another way to ask that question, actually, and, and we're doing this process ourselves, it's a great question. It's just like, who are you not for? Because sometimes that's actually even easier, right? It, you know, who are you for? It's a big chunk of people, but maybe who are you not for is smaller, but even that can help get you a little bit narrowed in, you know? So again, I think that's one of the, the challenges is people try to speak to all different types of groups, which is what leads to a lot of vagueness or lack of clarity in what we're what we learn time and time and time again again is that clarity trumps persuasion specificity is absolutely paramount and so that's probably the biggest thing that we see is missing from kind of that value proposition answer very very cool and so as organizations work toward getting that clarity and that uniqueness and improving their value proposition 
what can they do to actually improve their online fundraising? Besides, of course, as you said, they got to make sure the link works. And if someone reaches out to them, they got to make sure they, they reach back. A couple of things. One, again, the message is the most important thing. So that's what we would spend a lot of time testing. So what's cool, again, with digital is the rate of learning is amazing. The, the cost of learning is so cheap. So you can use something like Usability Hub, throw up a website, throw it up to 100 people for a buck a person and get some feedback and do a five second test. Show the website for five seconds, take it away and say, what did you remember? What, what did you think? And just get some sort of external feedback and validation. Um, I'd say that's another thing that generally speaking, nonprofits, we are actually really, really poor at is any sort of external rigor. We'll, we'll use anecdotal, like a major donor or a board member, or, you know, we sent out an email and this one person replied back and said, we email too much. Right. And then, oh, put the pause button on the email. We're emailing too much. And it's like, you send emails to 10,000 people and one person said, no, like this is such an outlier case. Right. So we often cater so much to the outliers. And so why, why we spend so much time focusing on kind of numbers and statistics and is it significant is there needs to be some element of rigor for how we use external data sources. And ideally, it would be actual actions through experimentation and tests because people will say and do different things. But absent that surveys, focus groups, customer calls, there's this whole element that I think we're, we're generally fairly weak at. And that's one way to help improve messaging. So in terms of improving overall online fundraising, it actually ties into that second framework that I mentioned. So uh, a research firm in, in Florida is called Mech Labs, and we, we borrow a lot of their optimization methodology and apply it to the nonprofit space. But they came up with a conversion heuristic, and it's just kind of like um, you know a guide of sorts to think about why do people make decisions and take action online. And this kind of heuristic or equation is 4M, so four times someone's motivation, plus 3V, their understanding of the value proposition, minus two I minus F, so incentive minus friction, minus two A. It's not great to do this on a podcast. Normally there's a visual that shows that, but what's useful about it is someone's innate motivation to give to your cause is by far the most important thing, right? If I don't care about dogs fundamentally, you could have the best dog focused organization in the world and it's just not gonna appeal to me. Back to this idea of who's your ideal donor, what is their motivation? That's who you need to find because it's really hard to move someone's innate motivation too, too much. Like that's who the human is. It's so deep seated, right? Then it's value proposition. Do I understand? So say I am a dog person and I have that motivation. Now do I understand why I should give to your dog charity, right? That's the message side of things. Incentive minus friction. Incentive is things like matching, um, uh, swag bags, public radio, public media love their like physical, you know, incentives. It could be uh, a, a campaign, Giving Tuesday Day. Those are all different forms of kind of incentives that add some urgency or extra reason to give today. Um, friction's anything that stands in the way of a donation. Could be confusion to friction. I don't know where to go. You know, it could be decision friction. You've got 118 drop down funds. I don't know which one to support. Uh, it could just be form friction. Why do you need to know what day I was born for me to make a donation to you? There's all different types of friction that we add to the online giving experience. And then there's anxiety, which is really like, why should I trust you? And is my personal information secure? That's really what they're asking. So when you look at this kind of, again, this isn't all the reasons necessarily, but I think it's a useful framework of thinking, why does someone make a decision online and specifically to give, you know, motivation, value, incentive, friction, anxiety. And then we talk about the easiest way to optimize your online giving experience is to basically work back to front. So someone's anxiety. Is their information secure? Are you a trustworthy organization? 
Do you show a lockbox, you know, on the credit card area so they know it's secure? Do you have a trust mark or testimonial? Just something that makes them feel secure. Can you then reduce the friction, the number of steps, the number of form fields? Is it possible on a mobile? Can you add a little incentive? Um, these are lower level things, but they're generally easier to fix. And then you get into value proposition, which is one of the hardest things to fix, but it's the most important. So that's where we'll often look to optimize is kind of that equation back to front. And again, it's a bit of a framework for you to kind of think about your online giving experience and where can you improve. And as I think about this, and this is purely anecdotal, which you've already said is a terrible, terrible thing to do. But as I think about this purely anecdotally, I think probably the two items that organizations have the most control over are friction and then finding motivated donors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we found is actually really, really varied. So sometimes um, a lot of the friction is say in the donation tool, right? And they'll say, ah, we can't control whether it's three step or whether there's a, a fake confirmation screen. And we'll always say is that tool is a choice. If you're using a crappy donation page, like that's your choice to use that crappy donation tool. So don't put your hand up and say, ah, we, there's nothing we can do. You can change it. There's nothing stopping you from changing it. Now, cost, time, et cetera. But this perception of like, ah, oh, we're stuck with this tool uh, is not helpful. So there, we see a lot of organizations getting hamstrung with the tool that they have. And actually the message, this is another reason why we focus a lot on the message, is normally there's you know your page, what you put before the donation page, or what you put in the email. You control the message. Now, maybe the form and how that email is delivered, that's where tools come into play. But you almost always control what it is that you're saying and to your point, to who? You know, who are you targeting? Who are you going after? And that's where, again, the, the tactic side of things is relatively easy. We've learned enough about user behavior and user experience online where we kind of know what works. Where you need to spend most of your time is figuring out who really gets it. How do you find them? And what is the message? That's really the most difficult part, and that's the heart of marketing and fundraising. But so many organizations spend so much time with just figuring out tools and steps that they can't get to the bigger question or the bigger issue, right? So I know our listeners are going to want to know, how do they find those prospects that get it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really, really good question. I know there's, there's a bunch of different ways that people would answer that. Um, you know, some people would say doing a lot of qualitative research, donor persona building, customer interviews. I think that's really, really useful. And there's some we're not equipped to do that. Uh, we're not the best people to do that. Where we always err is testing and tracking. So we'll build donor lifecycle dashboards and look at things like multi-year uh, donors, recurring donors, lifetime value of donors and try to figure out where does revenue actually come from, either donor source or when you come online like channel or medium. And then how do you find more of those same people? This is why like lookalike audience building on Facebook is so key. You upload your best donors and tell Facebook, say, go find me other people that look like this. And Facebook uses all their creepy data to come back and tell you, here's people that look more like your own donors, right? And that, that's really where, where we try to find time and testing. Because we found, again, qualitative research can only get you so far. It's useful. But it just gets you a more educated guess. At the end of the day, it's still just guessing. So the more that we can actually track, right, uh, we targeted this type of person or this group of people, and here were the results in terms of their giving. And ideally, it would be more long-term giving, not just who gave, but, you know, how much did they give over time. Um, and then once you kind of figure that out, then you can try to say, here's what that person looks like. Here's how we know that they give. And then you can try to, like, find me more of these people, right? But it's really about a data and tracking issue. 
So I think you just offered such a incredible suggestion for some of the organizations out there, because I know, literally, I cannot count the number of organizations I know that are paying to boost Facebook posts, but they're not uploading some basic demographic data of their top donors and saying to Facebook, go boost it to people who are like this. Instead, they're like, oh, look, we got this boosted and we were, you know, it was seen by 3,000 people. When if you had it seen by the 30 right people or the 300 right people, you might be more excited about it. Yeah, that goes back to a lot of just how we view, view digital and even metrics to a degree. Reach metrics or sometimes vanity metrics. How many people visited a site? How many people saw something? Impressions, right? Um, how many people opened an email or possibly even clicks? A lot of those things can be very misleading. Fundamentally, your job is to get a donation. So did those people actually go through and take an action? Or in the email example, great, half the people opened your email, zero people donated. Is that really a great email, a great fundraising email? So it's actually thinking about what's the end goal. And then if you start by really tracking and measuring that, then it gets a lot easier. Absent that, then great. 3,000 people saw this post, 4,000 people saw this video, and it sounds cool. But unless you can tie that action into the, the key action that you want, a conversion, a donation, an email sign up, whatever it might be, then you could very well be, be measuring the wrong thing. And we see that all the time in our research where uh, shorter emails, more visual emails, using video and email in particular, all those things typically give you more clicks. But longer emails, no visuals, high, raw and just like no buttons, no design kind of these ugly emails end up getting more donations most of the time, not all the time, but very, very often. And so if you're optimizing for clicks, it'll keep pushing you down a certain path. Whereas if you optimize for donations, it actually puts you down a different path. So I think that's another challenge that nonprofits have is, is it comes back to data and what are we tracking? Because you can't optimize that which you can't measure. I had said this to someone else today. I started working just before, barely, but just before email hit the workplace. And so really before there were email solicitations to anybody because there was really no email other than the military. And back then, the four-page letter and the six-page letter worked so much better than the two-page letter. And board members and executive directors would be incredulous because they would go, no, a two-page letter. And you would say, look at the data. Look at the data. The six-page letter works better. And they'd say, but people aren't going to read that. And you would say, but the people who are, the people who are going to give, that's who we're writing exactly. to. And you know what's so funny is that's a, we have to like relearn almost all of those same core principles that we kind of learned in direct mail testing all over again on the web. Now, there's obviously some differences in things like that, but so much of what we learned in direct mail is actually true and online. And that's because really good testing doesn't test channel, it tests human behavior, right? And people that can actually connect with a message, especially emotionally, are the ones most likely to give. So cool, that's short. They clicked it. If there's no strong emotional connection, they're not going to give. You probably need a little bit more time, a little bit more copy, a little bit more message to actually connect someone. And then the same type of thing, right? Like 80% of new donors won't give. And so instead of worrying about that 80% necessarily, why aren't they giving? We need to do a better job at understanding that 20%. Why did they give? Why did they give again? What was it? And then do more of that, right? Th those are the two sides of the coin. And I think we spend so much time on kind of the loss side in the donor side that maybe we don't spend enough time really understanding those who are actually giving, and then how do we get more of them, right? 
So again, a lot of this comes to like your, your approach or structure or data or, or what you actually uh, track and optimize for. I will say, I think that's really actionable information to re- for everyone to think about too. Think about those 20% who are continuing to give, figure out how you're going to find more committed donors like that and not worry so much about the one-time donors where you spend a lot of money and don't make that much. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Brady, I have got to stop here because we need to make time for the off the map question. And you know, the off the map question, it just lets listeners get to know you a little bit better. Now you had shared with me before we recorded that you had about five days notice that you were going to be a parent. Most people have a lot more time than that. So I think, I think I need an explanation. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know how much, how much time we have, but at one level we had, you know, two years or so to prepare, but the reality is, yeah, we had five days. So for whatever reason, uh, my wife and I, we weren't, we weren't able to have, well, we weren't able to get pregnant and we started going through the, the kind of testing process and, um, it was inconclusive. And then before we went to the next rung, we just kind of paused and, you know, said like, well, why, why don't we just adopt? We had talked about adopting before we were even married actually is, you know, is something that we would want to do. And we thought, yes, we just thought maybe we'd have a few of our biological kids and then adopt, you know, but your greatest plans like just gone. So we said, well, forget this instead of, you know, testing and going down that path. And I know people go down that path for us. We said, let's just go down the adoption path. That's a long path. If you know anyone who's gone down the adoption path, it's a long journey. There's courses and certification. And the irony is we had to like pay money and get certified and go through social workers. Whereas like people who don't adopt, it's just like, they just get knocked up and have a kid. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like the hoops we had to jump through compared to the the non hoops that you know biological kids and parents don't have to go through. So, anyways, we went through this relatively quickly. It took about a year for us to go through the process in terms of being eligible to to adopt. And then it's often nine, twelve, you know, eighteen months. It really varies. Um, you know how long it takes before you actually get placed with a child. And um, we were adopting locally in Canada, and we were relatively open in terms of age and gender. And so we had a better chance, but uh, we basically got a call within two months. And that's really, really quick. Uh, We were driving back from the mountains and kind of in and out of cell reception. So that's very stressful. So like we pulled over and our agency said, hey, we got a call from this other agency uh, on Vancouver Island and was like, uh, they need a match quick and we think you might be matched. Can we share your information with them? And we're like, yes, of course. So that was like Wednesday. They called us back Friday and said the couple had chosen my wife and I, can you get over to Victoria? And we said, sure. So we came over to Victoria on Sunday, met our son Hendrix. He wasn't our son at the time, but we met our son Hendrix on Monday and uh, took him home on a Wednesday. So within a week we went from, you know, early 30s, living living our great life, to, to income, no kids, uh, to we have an 11-day-old, and just, you know, that's a that's a shocking transition for sure. Yeah, so that's like the, the short version of the story. And, and what else is interesting is they tell you in the adoption courses to not, you know, paint the baby room, um, because it could take a long time, and it's really, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know, to walk by a, an empty room that you have prepared. It, it can be a reminder of what you don't have, and so they tell you, you know, be kind of prepared, but not not really. And so luckily we had family and friends in the area who gave us all their, you know, used stuff and we were able to to get things set up pretty quick. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty big life change in a small, small time period. Really good for you and your wife for adopting. I've, I have a niece that was adopted 
actually out of the Department of Family and Children's Services. And mm. people who adopt children are saving lives. They really are. And they're, they're building adults and they're building a better world. And just mad respect for you. Mad, mad respect. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, it was interesting when we, when we went down that path initially, it, it was nothing about, you know, trying to be great people necessarily, uh, or, you know, saving lives or any sort of calling is a small component, but honestly, it was, we'd like to start a family and we can't. And so this is one route. And then what, what changed through that is actually, you know, our interaction with the birth mom and the birth family, and, and um, you know, the impact that we actually have on Hendrix's life, that's taken on a lot more meaning for us as we've gone on is kind of, you know, the importance and, and the gift and blessing and how do you, you know, steward that. But that really wasn't a part of the, the process early on. So, um, you know, people that are, I appreciate the respect and, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, that adopt and it is difficult and they do a lot, deserve a lot of respect. But for us, it was really just a way to start our family. I, I do. I, I have, again, I just have mad respect. My my husband and I, obviously, we cannot biologically have children because, well, I guess we could have a surrogate, but the two of us by ourselves cannot biologically have children. So it would be an intentional decision on our part. And we talked about it for about five seconds. Do you want kids? No. Do you want kids? No. And that was it. But even though we don't want kids, like just mad respect for anyone who raises kids and, and, and certainly anyone who's very intentional about raising kids. And when you adopt, it is the most intentional way to get a child. So really, yeah. May, good for you guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could talk on and on and on about adoption and the process, but I know we got other things to get to. So yeah, that was a bit of our journey. Well, Brady, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Brady and Next After's research and how you can use it to improve your own organization's fundraising, then make sure you check out Next After's website at nextafter.com. At that website, you can find out more information about memberships and courses that you can take that, again, will help you improve your fundraising. And if you go to nextafter.com forward slash pod, they have a special landing page with discounts for those memberships and those courses. Finally, be sure you follow them on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Hey, Brady, again, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for the work that you do. Even though those URLs were pretty easy, have no fear if you missed them, dear listener. Just head over to our website at SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and we will link to those. We'll have a transcript. We'll have time-stamped highlights. Everything that you've come to expect from our show notes, you will find there at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, I've got an ask for you. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which is funny because Brady was just talking about you sign up and then you don't get anything. And admittedly, the newsletter's been on hiatus for about five or six months as we've had some staffing changes. But we are relaunching it, so make sure you sign up for it. And let me just say, the podcast is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the great content we produce and share with our listeners. So if you want more, sign up online at SuccessfulNonprofits.com for our newsletter. And that is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.